Good morning, everyone. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director at the Mitchell Institute. Today, we're pleased to host this Mitchell Institute Operational Imperative Series panel on Agile Combat Employment. Early last year, Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall outlined seven operational imperatives for capabilities and functions the Department of the Air Force must develop to deter and, if necessary, defeat pacing threats like China. Now, over the past few months, we've been exploring these imperatives, meeting with the leaders charged with their execution. And today, we're going to continue this conversation. Operational imperative number five focuses on defining optimized, resilient basing, sustainment, and communications in a contested environment. And let's face it, this is going to be a deal maker, a deal breaker when it comes to generating decisive combat power. So with that, I'm honored to introduce our guests. They're all key figures in this effort. First, we've got General Brigadier General Michael Zulsdorf. As Deputy Director for Resource Integration, General Zulsdorf is one of the leads for making Operational Imperative 5 a reality. Next, we've got Todd Sears. He's the Associate Chief for Command and Control and Integrated Air and Missile Defense and co-leads Headquarters Air Force's Base Defense and Resilience Capability Development Team within Air Force Futures. We've also got Colonel Patrick Lawney. He's the Chief for Logistics and Readiness Division. And last but not least, we've got Colonel James Hartle. All right. He's the Associate Director of Logistics and Deputy Chief of Staff for Logistics, Engineering, and Force Protection. So gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us here today. And I'd like to kick things off by giving each one of you the mic to share some opening thoughts. And let's just follow the order of introduction to begin with you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate it. I want to thank everybody uh, for allowing us to be here today. I mean. It's clearly an esteemed group that is on the line right now. And I know that a lot of my mentors are out there right now who have had this challenge in the past. Um, and so this is not a unique challenge. Um, and, it, and we were talking on the way over. It just truly is an honor to be here in the, in the Mitchell Center uh, with all of us to discuss this really heady challenge that we've got. It is a complicated challenge. Uh, operational imperative number five, resilient basing, how to get at that in a in a theater that frankly is really, really big, to set up a resilient basing option is, is a huge challenge and we're finding that out. But I can, I can promise you all, we have some very smart Americans and we have some very smart allies and partners that are out there that are helping us get at that wicked problem that we've got. And let me be very clear to all audience members that might be watching, none of us up here want war, none of us do. But our primary job in the Department of Defense is to prepare for that. And so we have, as I said, we have a really solid team that is looking at this wicked, wicked problem that we have for all of our great Americans, all of our great allies and partners, and to provide national security across the globe. And I am very excited and happy to be able to discuss more in, in detail. So yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, sure. Doug. Sure. You? Yeah, thank you very much, Doug. Appreciate uh, everybody out there. Uh, I'm again like like General Zulsdorf. I'm very humbled to be in this in this audience and amongst my peers here uh, on the panel. Uh, I want to thank you for the gracious invitation and the willingness to entertain this particular topic. I think the timing could not be better uh, for this. Uh, not that that we are. We are uh, at some crossroads, but I think we are at a point of realizing that the adversary's development of, of some extremely sophisticated capabilities that are challenging our basing in, the, in, in all uh, theaters is now at, uh, at a time where we have to do different things 
and respond to it appropriately. And that is the crux of operational imperative number five. Now, this strategy of our adversaries, this you know, anti-access strategy, isn't new. I mean, it's as established as Billy Mitchell and Duhay and, and theorists like Slesser. This is an old way of attacking air superiority. Hit our air forces where they're most vulnerable. Our job in operational imperative number five has been to deny the adversary that advantage. So we're going to speak to a lot of different things. Some of them may be even controversial as, as, as we begin discussing this. Uh, the idea is to be thought provoking. I'm going to be speaking with a capability development hat on. I'm trying to advise. I don't make the decisions, but I advise on, on where I think we need to go uh, in terms of both base defense and base resilience. And I, I, I think that this team will present some information here that will uh, at least be, be uh, evoking some new thought and some new discussion on this topic. Appreciate the opportunity. That's great, sir. Thank you. Sure. Sir, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, talk about the criticality of logistics statement and basing in the in the larger fight. You know, when we look at from a from a, a pacing adversary perspective, you look at the vulnerabilities and the threats that that we'll face go all the way back uh, left of origin back into the CONUS, and and the sheer lethality and the tempo of the fight uh, is really going to stress our ability to just get in the door through our mobilization processes, our deployment processes. Uh, it's really going to challenge our training, uh, the sustainment strategies we have. The IT systems, the ability to detect risk across the networks, uh, and then have that reduction of cycle times and be able to make those those informed decisions. And at onset, uh, it really comes down to, to the posture and preposition of where we are, uh, balanced with the distribution velocity that we're going to need to continue to sustain, sustain those operations. So uh, we need to be there, and we need to have the posture and prepositioning to begin the operations. Uh, we've got to get there, so we're going to have a, a fight uh, left of origin to, to get in theater, mobilize, uh, deploy. Uh, distribute responsibly and integrate uh, across that theater with our allies and partners uh, and get into the theater. And then we gotta, we've got to be able to stay there. We have to have that sustainment aspect, generate that mission uh, persistently, uh, be able to maneuver, be a force of maneuver, a uh, challenge for, for, for us, uh, and to survive that threat and also remain our, our lethality. Uh, there's a piece of that that goes into the network aspect, but also our, our working with our allies and partners uh, and also with the industrial base uh, and all the people that we rely on in the commercial markets. Uh, we got to keep ahead of that evolving threat and keep those logistic lifelines, those bloodlines running uh, so we can, we can continue to generate mission and enhance the aspect of operational flexibility. Uh, again, thank you, sir, for, for being here this morning. Allow me to be here this morning. No, that's really well said. Appreciate that, sir. Yeah, thank you. Uh, appreciate the invitation. Uh, what a great honor it is to be here at the Mitchell Institute to talk about probably one of the most defining problem sets, I think, that our Department of Defense has, has really approached in a really long time. But as we look at this problem set, we've been looking at it kind of prior to the Secretary's OIs. His initiative really helped us launch into what I like to say is now the verb yeah. of posture, setting the theaters or theater preparation. It was easy to look at the requirements. It was easy to look at the things we should do or how we look at this problem. But more importantly, we are now in that execution mode, which brings a whole new set of challenges. And ultimately, it is now, like I mentioned, kind of that verb in action as we continue to go forward, whether it's the, the posture element of OI5, whether it's the theater preparation of our ACE task force laid out by the chief, or whether it's our setting the theaters initiative as outlined by our basic and logistics enterprise strategy. All of those efforts 
through somewhat different lenses, but all very, very common and really getting after that ultimate goal. But once again, appreciate the opportunity to be here today. No, and our welcome to all of you. It's, it's our honor to host you. And this is such an important topic. I mean, we talked about it when you first welcomed you that, you know, the history and all surrounding air power and, and military power in general. I mean, this is the crux of so much. We, we can buy different you know, elements of hardware and all that, but unless you can base and sustain it, I mean, good luck. Right. So, you know, with that, I'd like to turn to some more questions and, and please just weigh in as you like. But the first one, you know, you touched upon this in your opening remarks, but I want to dig a little deeper. In our bases in the Pacific and Europe, they're concentrated and it allows for certain operational efficiencies, but it also makes them big targets. You know, how are you balancing those variables as you work through this operational imperative? Yeah, I can, I can chime in on that one. Um, as we've said before, operationally, it's a wicked problem set that we've got, um, especially given the resourcing decisions that we made over the last 20 or 30 years that have made our bases much more efficient. Um, when, you, when you talk about concentrated mission sets at specific bases, um, we've, we've been really good at that because we have not had that threat that is now present with our near peers, whether that's uh, the PRC or the Russian Federation or whoever, whoever that is uh, that's out there. And so again, for the last 30 years or so, We've concentrated a lot of resources in some specific bases uh, that are whether they're in the Indo-PACOM theater or perhaps even in USAFE. Um, and so it's interesting, I, doing some homework for this, I know you, we have uh, probably an esteemed member out there in the crowd right now, Lieutenant Colonel retired Price Bingham, yeah. put together a really good article in 2020 yeah. that basically said our bases are our Achilles heel. And this is coming from a fighter mm -hmm. pilot. Um, so he recognizes the fact that you cannot have mission just spring up off of nothing. You need that resilient base that is going to be able to survive uh, and, and be able to be that power projection platform. And it's a problem set that we've dealt with, frankly, since World War II, um, you know, the Korean War, uh, Vietnam War, um, even in the Persian Gulf. We just were not providing the joint force commander um, and the combatant commanders enough options to operationally maneuver where they needed to. And so um, I think in each one of those, you find that, you know, we, we concentrated resources, whether it's fuel or aircraft parts or aircraft, um, you know, on a single base. And, and Price gave examples of Vietnam when he was there where we lost a lot of aircraft because it took a single hit. And so, you know, this is kind of that. Additionally, what we're trying to do is set a robust infrastructure out there so that we can do the agile combat employment uh, ACE maneuver that we need to succeed and, pro and provide for an ATO and air tasking order for, for whatever joint force commander we need. And so what we're talking about with this is we need to bolster the existing bases that we currently have from a facilities and infrastructure and command and control and an air base air defense perspective. We're gonna bring to life some mothballed bases that are out there. So we talked a little bit before, Doug, about World War II. You know, we have a lot of capability in some of those airfields yet that's out there in the Pacific. And so we're gonna capitalize on, you know, investing in that and, and bringing some of those facilities or those uh, bases to life. We're gonna team with allies and partners. Um, we cannot do this alone. And so we're making fantastic inroads where we need to uh, in that Indo-PACOM theater, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or Great Britain or the Philippines, Filipinos or whoever else we're going to team yeah. with over there, Japan. Um, and so we're, we're working hard with them and doing
doing a lot of training with them. We've got a lot of exercises that are happening. You know, we have Cope North all the time that's going over there. Um, you know, we just had an awesome logistical exercise, Mobility Guardian 2023, yeah. really showcased a lot of capability that we have, but it also identified some gaps and seams that we have. And so operational imperative number five is really trying to get at that uh, so that we can properly set that theater to allow the Pacific Air Forces commander and the Indo-PACOM commander, or if we have to, you know, use some other, some other entity, we're going to provide them options that they need to be able to, to get at this. Um, the bottom line with this resilient basing is we need to make sure that we set the theater so that our airmen, that our soldiers, our sailors, our, our, our Marines, uh, the guardians that will be out front, that they are, they are taken care of, they have the tools that are necessary um, to be able to succeed in that kind of an environment. Frankly, an environment that we haven't been challenged with for quite a long time. I came in in 1986, so I'm an old guy. And that's when we had, you know, one near peer at the time. Um, and I learned a lot about multi what a multi-capable airman was. And so we will also, through this effort, do some multi-capable airman training to make sure that our airmen are, can do different jobs that are necessary out there. So I think, I think that might, might get at it. I don't know if you want to dive into anything else on that one or any follow-up no, questions? Do, or, do any of you have additional yeah. thoughts you'd like to weigh in? I'll even just kind of add sure. to that, General Zulsdorf, because that was a great point and really great answer to that first question. I think now that we're into that execution part that I mentioned, and as we're pre-positioning those assets forward, we've quickly realized that that storage and sustainment problem set that we have to look through or that lens gives us you know, a, something else to think about. Hey, how do we really manage that and work through that? Ultimately, you know, it'd be great if we could build a, a great big building and put everything in it at a location. We even know that that execution element kind of does dispersal right. at said locations. You think it's common sense, but it's that execution element now that we're really thinking hard yeah. and looking to. And in some instances, it's sometimes hard to, to throw a number when it comes to resources, the dollars required to really get to that sustainment and storage piece, which is critical. In, yeah. a, in a very, in an environment that is corrosive as that in the Pacific. No, and you know, we were talking about it earlier, but you think about when we were preparing for that in the industrial age, there was one set of requirements. You now overlay that with the information age requirements yes. and we're, you know, corrosive right. nature of the Pacific and all of that and, and some of the electronics that are gonna be there. I mean, it's a totally different ball game. Yes. Really different thinking. Any other thoughts? I just uh, hammer home one point that uh, the General Zulsdorf made, and that is, and this may sound counterintuitive, but we can no longer afford to organize for efficiency. We have to organize for effectiveness. Yep. And that means making smart choices about how we go about doing this. And it will probably also uh, force us to rely much more heavily on our allies and partners than what we have traditionally allowed ourselves to yep. do. No, I mean, what makes sense for commercial efficiency is totally different than combat relevance and viability. And, yeah, absolutely. It's a good deal. So, you know, when it comes to agile combat employment, and that's a distributed basing construct, you know, it's obviously one approach. It's going to help disperse our forces in theater. However, the joint logistics enterprise isn't set up to sustain that sort of paradigm in many ways, especially at scale. So what changes do we need to ensure our forces can be supported given those new demands? Yep, 
I'll certainly hop on that yeah. question first. So absolutely, the you know, when we take a look at, I think there's studies out there that says, you know, sustaining distributed operation requires 40% additional resources, mm-hmm. right, as normal. But we know that the, the ACE scheme of maneuver, the ability to disperse for survival yep. and then aggregate forces for effect to deliver, you know, um, what we need in that combat power against the enemy is certainly critical. So as we look at the the um, the effectiveness and the investments that we need that Mr. Sears brought up, we've got to ensure that what we're investing in, right, makes a difference, yep. that it is survivable, getting back to the resiliency piece, and then ultimately be able to generate those combat sorties in an effective manner, you know, at the point of need and at the pace in which, you know, an air tasking order will require as we continue to move forward. But once again, it's that increased resource requirement, you know, to sustain that distributed operation element. And that just kind of gets to your point, fuel, fuel, uh, munitions, I kind of say beans, bullets, and bandages as right. well, kind of use an army term as well um, as we move forward, but that's a big piece of it. No, for sure, for sure. Other thoughts? You no, know, when you look at the scheme of maneuver that, that an agile combat employment is, uh, it, it really is a, is a, a challenge for, for the Air Force in terms of how we're going to be more of a maneuver force. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, That's right. We've done a lot of uh, partnership working with other services, uh, looking at the United States Marine Corps doctrine, how they do uh, logistics in certain areas. And uh, we've, we've gotten able to capture a lot of lessons learned from that. And also just uh, with the larger understanding of the distribution network to continue to make sure those bases are operating, we're con- you know, persistently generating mission, uh, doing what's needed to, to accomplish it on time uh, and on task, there's a level of velocity that we just right. have to continue uh, to, to push, knowing that we're going to take a hit. Uh, we've got to keep fighting. We've got to re- maintain being able to, to put those effects downrange uh, all the way back to uh, to CONUS with support from the industrial base. No, I like that term velocity because, I mean, again, you think about the scale of forces in play and just the, the demands. I mean, that is a pipeline. It's got to be sustained. It's very different time. environment. Yeah. what we've been in before. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Or? Great. So when it comes to air-based resilience, you know, beyond creating a more distributed base architecture, it's also important to recognize that we'll still need our core bases. And that the, you know, really demands we defend them. And so what are your thoughts on this when it comes to both passive and active measures, especially ones that are viable from a cost perspective when used in high volumes? Yeah, I, that's a great that's a great point. I mean, it is definitely something that within Operational Imperative Five that we are evaluating. You know, with these active, the active um, defense that we're looking at these these sensors, if you're going to have to place at some distance out, that will then inform some system that we have that is a probably likely a, a ground to air system that will be able to protect that and maintain the integrity of the resilience of that base and make sure the ATO can happen your tasking order. Um, we're looking at some electronic warfare type capabilities. I mean, even when you think about just simply defending the base with blue unmanned aerial systems, yeah. right? Um, you know, all of us have deployed and we've all seen elements of this as some of the forward operating bases and the co-located operating bases that we had in either Iraq or Afghanistan, but this is a totally different scale. Um, when you think about the weapon systems that we potentially could be facing in that right. theater. So, you know, the, the obvious cost-effective uh, uh, activities that we could use would be the passive ones where we're going to do the dispersal on the airfields and we will make sure that we've got room out there to put the assets far enough out so that we can get them, but that they're not going to all be taken out yeah. in, you know, in the one shot. Uh, we're doing 
camouflage concealment and deception. Uh, we're standing up some legs in that, which is a different effort that Secretary Kendall is working, but it is absolutely something that is um, gaining legs and that we will, we will use. Um, part of, again, Operational Imperative 5 is pre-positioning some of this uh, war reserve material. Um, and so we want to be able to then capitalize on, on all of that and not have to worry about um, having a base that is requiring a piece or a part from some other base yeah. 1,500 miles away, like we're gonna have that preposition so that resilience wise, they're there. We can fly in what, who we need to be able yeah. to turn an aircraft. They can do minor maintenance on that and we can, we can turn and burn it. And you know, I allude to a capability that's going to enhance the resilience of that air base, it's the airmen, right? So again, I talked about multi-capable airmen training. Uh, we are putting curriculums together to make sure that it's not just a maintainer that might be able to fix a tire. Yeah. Maybe it's a logistics readiness officer, or maybe it's a civil engineer that's already there that's doing uh, you know, some expeditionary airfield damage repair, or uh, maybe it's a defender whose primary job is to defend the perimeter of the base. However, they may have to come in and, and do something to just turn that aircraft, get it back into the fight so that we can move forward. And so those obviously are some of the things that I think about with air-based resilience um, as we're working through Operational Imperative 5. I don't know if anyone else wants to add to that. Sure, I, uh, I'll, I'll add from, from how I approach this as the uh, Air Base Defense and Resilience uh, Capability Development Team co-lead, uh, we have several lines of effort. You know, they cut across from active defense, passive defense, counter uh, ISR, uh, uh, to uh, the recovery activities that we would need to perform. One of the most challenging lines of effort that we, we have is what I call installation battle management command and control. It is how do we fight the base? Uh, it, it encompasses so much of the activities that happen on a base uh, that allow us to prepare, respond, and then recover from attack all while under fire. Yeah. Uh, big challenge. Uh, it, it's forcing us into a full dot mil PF review of how we conduct operations on a base and where can we make those operations more efficient, more effective for, for actually doing the, the activities needed to prepare for attack, responding while under fire, uh, both with passive and potentially active measures, and then recovering from that attack to be prepared so that we can do the primary job there, which is to generate combat power from that base. And that is a it's a it's a huge challenge, but it's one that we are tackling right now. No, it's encouraging. Sure. I, no, those are great. Absolutely, you know, uh, answers to that question for sure. Great. Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing too, I would just add. You know, we talked about multi-capable airman training. The other piece of resilience is for the individual themselves, and so we actually have teams that are looking at how to make that individual more resilient in the face of some of the threats that we may have. So we're looking at the entire spectrum when it comes to air-based resilience um, and then how it, how it contributes to the overall, overall fight. Yeah. Uh, and what I really like about your answer is you're looking at, in a 360 kind of fashion across sure. the board. It's not just hardware you know, or, or other elements. It's gotta be the people, the things, sure. the yes. actual physical location. 
and, and you know, the, just the mentality you're talking about. I mean, we saw that in many ways during initial operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. where what we thought were, you know, we're logistics folks and all that, all of a sudden were in the front line of attack and all that. It took a tremendous amount of training and just getting people into a different capability and mindset zone. And I think, you know, we'll see that on steroids in yes. terms of everybody's going to be on the front line in many ways. So how do we make them more resilient and effective? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, when we also think about this, there are some emerging active defenses against air missile threats, you know, capabilities like directed energy, electronic warfare systems, guided gun launch projectiles, and, and lower cost surface to air missiles. How do you rack and stack how, how we go about, you know, employing those, developing those, fielding those for, for maximum effectiveness and, and a viability, you know, perspective? So fortunately, we have a pro we can talk about this. <laughs> it's all on your shoulders. Don't fail us. So, well, let me start off with the fact that it is well understood and well established that we are uh, in in the trade between what the what the adversary can project in terms of fires on our bases, and the methods that are currently exist for us to defend against those. That uh, we are on the wrong side of the cost curve. Bottom line, we are what what I would say is on the losing end of a cost-imposing strategy. So there is a tension uh, that exists between the capabilities that are available today, right now, that we can reach out, we can grab if we, if we think we need to take on part of that and, and, and field those capabilities, uh, understanding that we are in a cat and mouse game right. with countermeasures and, and, and yeah. other aspects that the adversary is doing. And these are very costly missile systems that we're talking about. Uh, won't go into the details of them, but I think it's, it's fairly well understood. I have, I have, from the time we stood up the CDT about three years ago, uh, asked the question, uh, you know, do you want what's right or do you want what's right now? Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's critical because we are we are already, we'll say, at risk, yeah. uh, and the the time delay between where we sit right now and some of these emerging technologies, directed energy, electronic warfare, uh, some of the gun systems uh, that you mentioned, uh, are still immature in terms of total systems to be able to apply right. in, in an in an operational way. So. I think that those those types of capabilities offer exactly what the Air Force is looking yeah. for. We we need to get on the on the right end of the cost curve. Both it enhances our ability to to get deep magazines, right? Directed energy, electronic warfare. Not bringing a whole lot of bullets with that. And even with the gun systems, you're not carrying missiles, and 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 uh, you can probably buy bullets a lot cheaper right. than you can a lot of the missile systems. Logistically, much more supportable. Uh, the, the, the final thing is that in, in most cases, we think that these actually have a potential of flipping that cost right. curve. The challenge is that uh, they are still immature and require a lot of an upfront investment to get them to the point where we're going to be able to employ them effectively. So right now, as the Air Force looks at this and the potential of, of, of increasing our contribution to a joint layer defense uh, or active defense, yeah. Uh, our analysis at least indicates that our, our best bite-off point for the, for the Air Force would be to, to go after the, the UAS problems, uh, 
uh, cruise missile defense and leave a majority of the defense against ballistics and hypersonics and the area defense capabilities uh, to our sister services and joint yeah. partners. No, that's a good point. And I think, you know, especially when we're communicating to the Hill and, and other stakeholders that control these investments, it's so crucial to emphasize not just what is the cost of doing this, more importantly, what's the cost of not doing this? Right. Because that is truly <coughs> catastrophic and, and really puts existential risks at, at the table. Any other thoughts on, on this one? Great. So, you know, I think when, when we look at all of this, Ukraine offers some, some pretty big lessons and observations. And, you know, they've, they've continued to operate, you know, given that they've been under attack for the last year. And, and Russia's obviously got a significant long-range strike capability that they continue to use. And so what are the lessons learned that you've taken away from, from their experiences as, as you review this and, and apply it to what we're looking at? Yes, sir. I, I think there are a number of lessons that we can derive from it with the understanding, the operational environment and context. There are some differences yeah. between what we've seen in Ukraine and potentially some other areas like in the scenario in the Pacific. Yeah. But... Uh, just overall, above basing resiliency, the importance of, of, of air and space superiority. Uh, mm -hmm. I think if either side would have you know, had that initial onset, it could have been a lot, a lot shorter duration yeah. of, of conflict. Uh, when we look at the aspect of stockpiles and the link back to the industrial base, our relationships with those, with those, with those companies and the IB in general is just absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we need to provide them accurate demand signals. We have to have the proper forecasting. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to uh, ex expressing the duration of requirement and just the relationships. How do we incentivize those yeah. uh, those, those type of uh, uh, conditions? Uh, leveraging host nation capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at commercial markets in a lot of places, uh, there's a lot of opportunity where uh, we can identify sustainment options. Uh, if I don't have to bring it in theater, that reduces uh, my my pallets. I can focus on doing other things yeah. with those areas. And you're also getting some some inroads locally and building some relationships that uh, you can leverage and 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 work with later uh, later in the in the fight. Uh, when we look at unmanned systems, uh, when we look across the board at how low cost, easy to use, commercial off the shelf, uh, there's a lot of ways that you can turn that into an, to an operational right. uh, thing, whether it's doing ISR, arm reconnaissance, you know, there's a lot of ways that uh, they're very quickly adapting and using those things. But also on the counter side of it, the defensive aspect, that, that really does validate the need for dispersed locations to understand that we can't just bunch up a lot of things in one place. Uh, and also battlefield awareness. Yeah. Um, when, when you look at the standpoint of if I have my cell phone, my personal cell phone on, I could be painting the target on my chest. Yeah. You know, being an aware, aware of, of, of that. Uh, when we look at from a space standpoint, uh, when you look at the proliferation of systems versus single satellites, I think there's been some, uh, some benefit in terms of that added layer of information, how quickly we can turn uh, intelligence, share data with, with, with allies and partners. Uh, that's another key aspect too, is that yeah. allies and partners relationship piece. Uh, it's not just the access over flight and basing, the relationships I think we established for, from the EDI back in the 2014 timeframe, we've been able to leverage those and, and use those in a, in, in a lot of different ways right. and just the importance of, of those things. Uh, I also think that it's just a, an aspect of a sobering level of attrition. Yeah. You know, when you look at the impacts of uh, how am I gonna repair assets? How am I gonna turn things quicker, repair the base, take a hit, keep fighting? Uh, but also the effects on people. Yeah. Uh, I think there's uh, some, some takeaways there. Uh, and then I, I don't think you can discount just the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian uh, military and, and, yeah. and the people. No, no, it's huge. And, you know, I think as, as we look at it, too, one of the, I wouldn't say benefit, but effects that has been useful is really focusing 
both stakeholders in, in town around the country and the public at large about these are real threats. I mean, I remember the days when you go to the Hill and, and people look at you like you had two heads when you were talking about these sort of challenges. And yet, if you look at just the challenges their forces faced when they were trying to scare Kandahar, when that was being rushed by local populations, right, and yes. we think, what would an ACE location look like yes. um, if you cannot get that perimeter defense? If we look at what the Ukrainians are dealing with, these are front news, above the fold line kind of stories, which I think is crucial to help yes. us tell the story, because this is going to be real. And that's, that's just a fleet lead indicator. That's I mean, right. we would be facing a way harder challenge. That's right. Yeah. I agree. I agree with everything you just said, Doug, and everything uh, Patrick just laid out. And I'll just amplify relationships matter um, and coalitions matter. And, um, you know, we're we're fortunate in the regard, I think, in that particular theater that we have a good, robust infrastructure that can feed whatever machine needs to be done. We have a good intel system that is working collectively with everyone Um, and they're able to to push logistical supplies and logistical requirements where they need to in that battlefield because the back the back lines of of effort are all all established and so when you think about the other side of the world we're doing exactly that right now whether it's SAF International Affairs that's working through that or the Department of State or the Department of Commerce we're establishing those relationships that are necessary for the success uh, that we're going to need regardless of where we have to operate in the in the globe on the globe, so. Nah, it's so important. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I, I think we need to be prepared for, uh, at, at our bases, for uh, attacks by adversaries using very low cost way, uh, methods in very sophisticated manner. Uh, that, that has shown demonstrably uh, uh, effective right. in this campaign. Uh, training and agility matter. I, I think we, I think Ukraine has benefited from uh, Western influence on on some of their leadership training, uh, and I think that that shows where where you see small organizations, small groups of Ukrainian soldiers fighting off much much larger groups uh, because of the initiative of right. their young leaders. Uh, and finally, I would say that uh, hey, even though we may expect a very quick war. Uh, and, and we often calculate things based on a quick war. Uh, a, a longer war of attrition uh, may be what we get. Uh, so as we look generally at, you know, sortie generation as the metric to go by, we ought to also uh, equally consider force preservation yeah. uh, in the future. So now, I, I can't agree with you on, on that one enough. And, you know, that's not a lever we control. Not giving in, not losing is a, a card that the enemy controls mm-hmm. and and we've got to be ready to, to sustain for the long run because wow that that yeah. could easily defeat us yeah yeah so I, I want to pull the thread on, on something you were mentioning a little bit earlier and that's you know the notion of sustaining combat operations in, in contested environments I mean logistics efforts to resupply Ukraine they've, they've benefited from their proximity to, to NATO supply hubs and, and we're looking at a far different ballgame Pacific so if you're looking you know at what's facing the transcom commander during a given day of the challenge, how would this impact your thinking? Yeah, so I'll jump on that real yeah. quick, right? Because that's yeah. a that is probably the <laughs> the largest conundrum of them all as we look at this problem set. How do we? Hey, well, let's assume we get forces at the the point of need. 
um, and they have initially the resources and supplies that yeah. they have, but eventually we're going to exhaust those. So I think the resupply conundrum really gets difficult. I don't think we have a good answer yet. But we've got a lot of options. We're certainly um, working through that problem. Um, I kind of like what has been mentioned recently is gaining a lot of traction is kind of just automatically moving supplies and mm -hmm. materials forward, kind of like on a subscription service is yeah. something that our chief has mentioned, right? Hey, we know we're going to go forward and if we get into kinetic actions, you know, however many, that short period of duration, we may be in a comms denied environment. Yeah. We certainly know it's gonna be contested. So let's push the things that the data tells us that those forward units will probably be using, yeah. not ask for, you know, the, the airman to, to write the order, submit it in the computer, and then ask for a, a, a required delivery date. Yeah. We just know we're going to push a lot of that forward. I think that is a, a, a good way to get after it, the first opening stages of that. And I think ultimately, kind of back to the point that you made, you know, um, about the, the Russian offensive into Ukraine, um, going back to that just a little bit, because that really shows us how uh, logistics failed in a contested environment. I think we all remember the trail and the convoy right. coming out of uh, Russia towards Kiev and it just stalled. That was the perfect textbook example of logistics failing in a contested environment. Right. You know, the infrastructure of the transportation vehicles wasn't solid enough to move forward, couldn't get fuel forward to those vehicles either. So there it was, there's logistics failing. And I think that has obviously had some uh, follow-on effects yeah. and kind of uh, increasing the spirits of, of those fighting against the Russians, but kind of going back to it, that subscription service to move material supplies, fuel, ammunition, yeah airmen, whatever we may need to move forward on that piece of it is one of our ways and to, to kind of try at least get after some of that initial um, needs, you yeah. know, once a, a kinetic, you know, confrontation were to happen. Well, it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because as I understand it from what I've read, it's, it's uncanny. The artillery use in Ukraine is matching the Cold War tables hmm. really to a T yeah. on, on what they're burning <laughs> through for that zone of conflict. And so in many ways, some of this is just math. Right. I mean, you know, you're in a certain kind of fight. You're going to sustain a certain amount of sortie generation, mm -hmm. attrition, just use rate. I mean, we kind of know some of this, and so mm -hmm. we just need to lean on common sense. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And left of that, exactly what you're talking about is is knowing ahead of time uh, to the best extent possible because your your battlefield is going to dictate to an extent. But looking at planning rates, consumption rates, yeah. forecasting. Uh, factoring in the distribution aspect of I might be able to turn something quicker, but it may take a little longer to get there because right. uh, it will be uh, significantly challenged on the way in. So there's the posture piece to it. Left of that is the, the planning factor piece. Uh, and it really is uh, in some circles and, and I've previously heard talking about exploding in the theater. Just it's going to be a fast fight. But we've got to get in there quickly, uh, knowing that as we're going, we could potentially have to have to make changes and adjustments. So having a uh, logistics, being able to inform command and control structures uh, as the network flows, hey, we're planning to land there with these assets. Well, we can't land there. We have to land somewhere else. Uh, and that's where we have to fall back on uh, everybody else that is helping us, yeah. uh, the allies and partners that we have in those regions, all the commercial relationships, whether it's a port operation, whether it is uh, other entities that can help move freight, uh, all the international and domestic logistics partners across the board. I mean, we saw a lot of rallying occurring right. uh, in support of COVID. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same uh, similar type of thing. And it's really leveraging technology. You know, how, how can I have a, a system that can sense out in the network uh, and help inform, uh, as, as Colonel Hardover you know, talked about, it's not gonna be just that one supply yeah. airman uh, thumping things into the system. The network is also helping them. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, 
maybe the network can sense it before the person even realizes right. it and, and, and things are, are moving forward. And then there's a training aspect to that. You know, we've talked about the individual readiness piece. Uh, there's, a, there's a small team dynamic and a unit readiness piece. And then the larger exercises from a joint perspective and a combined perspective that, that really can tighten up on how we're able to get after this. No, that's a good thought. And you know, just following up, what should our other commanders be thinking about so that they can stay in operations given these sort of challenges? Just expand the consideration here. Yeah. A lot of it ties back to what we've previously talked to is the, <clears throat> the constant practice. Mm -hmm. It's fighting for that time to be able to, to rehearse where we're gonna go, what we're gonna do, and realize we, you don't wanna push to, to, the, to the point that you're breaking, but, but pushing, to where you're getting uh, folks confident in their abilities, yep. they're gonna fail, they're gonna make mistakes, but realizing that the more they practice, the more they rehearse in a very tough environment, uh, as realistic as possible, yeah. they're gonna gain a level of confidence, they're gonna gain a level of precision, um, but it's fighting for that, that space as a commander, balancing all those other uh, interests and, and challenges that they have, but it's also, there's a resourcing component to that as well as making sure that that's, that's yeah, part that's a good of it. Point. Yeah, and I would, um... I would add to the complexity is we've been lucky the last 20 or 30 years where we've had a cyber system that is probably uncontested, just right. like a lot of other things. And so if I were a commander today, I would be practicing how do we do this yeah. in an environment where I don't have an IT system that's alive currently. Yep. Um, and so do we go back to chalkboards and dry erase boards and, you know, mm -hmm. old school stuff back when I was a young a younger man with a lot more hair, uh, you know. So it's just, it's really, it really is getting them back to that mentality of thinking that, you know, we have an adversary that's thinking and they have the capability to project and we just need to be four or five steps in front of that. Yeah. And yep. that's what we have to challenge our commanders on uh, to be thinking through that. And then it's our job, all of us here that are inside this five-sided puzzle palace yeah to give them the resources they need to be able to execute the training that we know that they need to be successful yeah. in anything that we give them. Yeah. It, that's a good point too. And I'll just add to that is that, that organized training and equipping piece of it, right? Talk a lot about the training. I think there's, as we look through, don't want to open up the can of worms, talk about Afrogen and our force presentation models, but that gives us a, a new way of organizing our forces to present to obviously the combatant commander. Right. And with that organizational piece, our need to train and then ultimately equipping our airmen with the tools that they need. And kind of, we've talked a lot about, you know, we don't really need the the uh, the new old, right? We need those new, new tools mm -hmm. that are in the future, but there's a careful balance there because we can't get to the new, new today. So we got to get just enough new old to continue to invest there. So that our, or the organizational training and equipping our airmen and our forces is critical also to this element as well. So. No, it's huge. And, and in many ways, when you, you talk about the training, it's not, you just know, not, you know, not first move, it's how do you cascade right. through the other oh, elements yes, that you've kind of gamed it up. Yeah. So I really want to pull the thread in what you're saying, sir, about command and control. I mean, we often think about command and control in a combat employment scenario, you know, focused on fighters and bombers, but the challenge might be even more taxing from a logistics perspective. I mean, sustaining the force is incredibly information centric. So how are you and your team assessing that challenge? I mean, so many of our systems were built during an era of relative peace and, and permissivity, and we didn't think about defending our networks and comm systems in, in the kind of way that we might look at in the future. Well, uh, I'll kick it off with, with an initial thought, and this is more of a broad top-down top look at this. Uh, I think there is a recognition that we're going to be challenged not just 
in in you know generating combat power in this. But we're that contested environment includes our our C two systems, our mm -hmm. command and control, our computer systems that aid us in command and control, uh, and the information that we rely on. Uh, so the Air Force did develop new doctrine publication on mission command mm -hmm. that stems from uh, having a clear commander's intent, goes through a shared understanding be, be, of that intent and in, in, in how we're going to fight uh, to, uh, to using a disciplined initiative mm -hmm. in the field, uh, relying on the mutual trust established between our, our, our airmen yep. uh, and our partners. And then ultimately results in where, where you do not have the, the ability to, to take top-down uh, command level. You interpret that command level uh, down to, to the ability uh, to accept some prudent risk in, in the actions you take, right. still within the command uh, of, of, or under the command uh, guidance of, of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the commander, the field commander. Mm -hmm. uh, we use tools like uh, mission-type orders to, to allow us to operate in that, in that more flexible right. manner. So that's sort of a broad perspective of how we can approach this. Uh, the, the tools needed, uh, others may be able to comment on, on specifically how, how that would apply to logistics. Yeah, I, I would just add, so he gave the, the mission command piece. I will say, I think you guys probably have already talked to operational imperative, I think it's number three, the air battle management yeah. system. Yeah. Uh, Brigadier General Luke Cropsey, who's arguably been given one of the most challenging <laughs> command and control yeah. efforts that our, our Department of the Air Force has ever undertook. Um, and it's, it's trying to link all of our command and control systems into this ABMS, which will then feed into the joint all-domain command and control right. system that we're going to use as a joint force. And so I know the Army has Project Convergence. Uh, you know, the Navy has Project Over Overmatch. Yep. Um, and so that's our contribution, Air Battle Management System, ABMS. And so over that umbrella, then we will have to feed our own logistical yeah. C2 uh, information control. And a lot of that is probably falling into the Advana platform that is used by the Joint Force. And so we have, uh, we have some systems that we're working internally uh, to logistics specifically uh, that are going to highlight where we have where we're at with our logistical supplies and then it'll feed this system so that we can then push where we need to push right. our logistical supplies to the to the bases i don't know mm -hmm. patrick if you wanted to add to that or not or yes right it truly is our you know contributing the logistics integration of those command and control structures uh, because the it, it's just critical that we're logistically in, informing mm -hmm. uh, that and to be able to create that decision advantage for the for, for the operators uh, you know, there, there's an element of, you know, there's a lot of conversation we're having in the logistics community on, on operations research mm -hmm. and analysts and where's the right placement of them and how do we incorporate them into the discussion. Yep. Some of the things we previously haven't thought about and getting a, a left of that in terms from a defense standpoint, we look at supply chain risk management and looking at areas where we know we're going to be under fire, but there's ways to illuminate threats or pose something that it may not necessarily be a threat, but be, could become a liability or risk. Uh, as we look and do exploratory measures on where that company is located or who they who they partner with and those type of things. Uh, fighting for the use of technology, you know, the artificial intelligence, get a computer and make the computer smarter as it continues to to make decisions while keeping a person also involved yeah. and be able to, to, to help and inform that. Uh, and then really looking at those 
those primary alternate contingency and emergency type planning. Hey, when, when my system goes down, what do I do? Or when I start getting a sense that the data is not correct, right. you know, why it's not gone down, but it, it doesn't look quite the same or things were arriving at locations that I haven't ordered yep. and those type of things. Uh, and, and how we're going to, how we're going to act within that manner. No, those are excellent thoughts. You know, um, at this point in time, we're going to transition to, to questions from the audience. And so you know the drill by now. Aiden will call on you. And so if you could unmute your mic and please state your name and affiliation before asking your question. Or you can submit questions on the Q&A function. And so with that, Aiden, who do we have first? Uh, first off, we have a question from Fred Harbour. ACE began as an O&A concept and was directed into 2018 SNDS. We've seen PATH, ACC, PACA, and USAPIs all publish various concepts since then. So it seems like a lot of the actual organizing, training, and equipping has been going on at the squadron level, supported by the wing. Are we at the point where we can begin institutionalizing ACE in every squadron and incorporating it into exercises like green flag and red flag? Jim? Yeah, I, I can certainly jump on that. So that's a, a great question, and I'm absolutely right. And I think you know, if we went back to 2018 and we really talked about that element of, of trying to insta, uh, to allow our units to execute ACE was the absolute intention because I don't think our Air Force or, or even the Department of Defense, we wanted uh, for, to wait on the guidance from the Pentagon, you know, the five-sided building to tell folks how to do it. And so what we've done is we have got um, a numerous catalogs of lessons learned, how these units are able to go out and execute and more importantly, every unit based on the weapon system that they're employing, based on the location that they're going to, the ability of airlift as, an, as a variable to get supplies to where they need is always different. So allowing us to give basic overarching concept of operations to yeah. execute ACE allows the units to really move forward and get after the best way that they know how to move forward. To General Zulsdorf's point, the, you know, the uh, multi-capable airmen as well. We've really allowed our units to try and define that for themselves. We've got a little bit of, you know, overarching guidance now from the air staff. So we try to formalize the training for that. But ultimately we are putting the onus on our commanders that are in the field to execute their mission the best way that they know how, and obviously allowing us to uh, get their requirements and working through that organized training and equipment element. element. So I think that's really, a unique way that ACE has kind of evolved is really allowing the units to execute, grab those lessons learned, provide some guidance, but not direct to so directive in nature yeah. that there's no, that the left right boundaries to do that are so tight that it's, it's, it's ineffective. So That's it's worked out really well. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I would think in some areas we're already being able to execute those opportunities, mobility guardian 2023 that just Good happened. Point. And then we look at operations that uh, in Europe, in the Middle East recently, CENTCOM and UCOM, where uh, the United States Air Force and Space Force was uh, providing support, there were a lot of situations where we were employing aspects of agile combat employment into how we were going to posture and, and get in and conduct operations. Yeah, that's good. Aiden, next one. Next, we have John Turpak from Air and Space Forces Magazine. Good morning. Thanks very much for uh, uh, all doing this today, gentlemen. Uh, two questions. Um, at this point, you've probably done some kind of a census of the number of bases in the Pacific that you can operate from today in a fairly austere fashion. 
Give, give us a sense of how many that is and where that's going as you create new technology to learn to operate from a smaller footprint with a, uh, a smaller manpower amount. Yeah, the, um, the overall number is continuing to change based on the resourcing uh, that we have in there. Um, I, I will say that, uh, you know, we have a number of different hubs and spokes that are in that theater uh, right now. Uh, that's what they're being called for the, for the ACE employment. Um, you know, you think about island chains that are either in the, we call the first island chain. There are some bases that are already set there. And then the second island chain, which is basically Guam and all of those regions in there. And so there's a number of different airfields that we're working through and based on the resourcing, that number will shift. But um, teaming with analysis, so we've, we've studied this problem set with SAF um, uh, SSA, which is studies and analysis. Um, and they've established a number of different bases that might be able to allow the Pacific Air Forces commander to be able to run, generate an air tasking order uh, based on the number of spokes that are there um, with that. And so uh, a little bit of a vague answer on that, but it's, again, it's all resource informed um, and we're working through those challenges every, every year as we work through that. What I mean is, it, is it gonna grow considerably over the next five, 10 years or um, small increments? Uh, it will grow in increments that are visible uh, through time across probably two or three FIDAPs as we work through that. Okay, second question. Um, you only touched very briefly uh, on the Army's contribution to defending air bases. Uh, has the Army basically told you you're on your own except for big theater things, or uh, uh, is there a serious working partnership uh, at the individual base level? Okay. Yeah, uh, fantastic question. Uh, I'll take that one if you don't mind, sir. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so <laughs> most of my job is working with uh, Army and other sister services in, in uh, integrated air and missile defense. So I, I, I would say that, no, the Army is not backing away from this. Although, let's, let's be frank about this. The, 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 uh, the Army is developing additional capability and capacity for de, uh, active air defense. Uh, the conundrum comes in that they're not necessarily developing it for air bases, right? They, they provide air, air defense capabilities to the Joint Force Commander. The Joint Force Commander, advised by the Area Air Defense Commander, oftentimes the JFAC, is going to determine where those resources are placed to defend critical assets in the theater. The Army's not backing away. They're, they're developing. It's, it's, it's on their priority list. I, I think it's in their top five, maybe toward the bottom of their top five, but they're continuing to develop air defense capabilities uh, and enhancing those capabilities and even developing them to operate uh, more uh, in, in smaller packets, uh, if you will, that would probably be uh, commensurate with our active or, or our, our uh, uh, agile combat employment concept. The fact is, though, that they don't see air-based defense written as a mission set. And you go to DOD D5100.01, which establishes the roles and functions of the Department of Defense, it's, uh, uh, it talks about missile defense, and it, it also talks about force protection, both of which are defined as functions, A, with missile defense. Uh, it's a function that 
uh, all services bear some responsibility uh, within, and force protection is assigned to all uh, services. So, and there is nothing specific about base defense. We have historically relied upon the Army, and I think we'll continue to do so primarily. Interesting enough, uh, the Secretary of Defense was asked to, to, to look at that, those roles and functions, uh, and specifically as they apply to integrated air and missile defense uh, in, in 2021. Looked at, the, at the, the, we'll say, permissive nature. It's not directive in nature, even though it's a DOD directive. Uh, it is permissive in nature when it comes to missile defense. And he said that is satisfactory. Uh, Going, going in that same uh, NDAA direction, uh, the Air Force and the Army actually got asked to report to Congress on a strategy for uh, defense of bases, air bases, and pre-positioned sites in the, uh, uh, and, and come up with a strategy for doing so. And so the Army and the Air Force worked together on, on a strategy that acknowledges the, the Army's predominance in, in providing defense, but also acknowledges uh, the, that as the Air Force begins to disperse in an agile fashion, that the limited numbers of, of active defenses are going to have to be uh, robusted and that the Air Force uh, may have to contribute some to a joint layer defense of our bases, particularly where it applies to those uh, agile, uh, agile combat employment concepts. So, John, I would just add, I know we're almost out of time, Doug, but uh, what Todd is alluding to even bigger picture is that this challenge that we are facing has galvanized the building. Yes. I mean, I have been in and out of the Pentagon since 2009, and I have never seen a more galvanized, um, cohesive teamwork from the Department of Defense through the respective services to collectively work through this particular challenge, logistical uh, challenges that we have, weapon system challenges. And so uh, I, this is amazing to see. Um, and it's, it's awesome that we can work together and, and fight through uh, typically sister service specific uh, stovepipes and break that down. So I, it's yeah. been great to see that. So it's real good. quick, the, uh, the, the ones you mentioned, DW, Directive Energy, is that something the Air Force is pursuing on its own or with the Army? So the Army is pursuing it and the Air Force is pursuing it. Some of those, uh, some, there is some collaboration between the two on, on, on that. Thank you. Aiden, I think we have time for one more from our audience. Sure, we have a question from Bill. Uh, he's asked, the Army and Marines have similar aspirations in terms of being able to Co-use the finite number of force-scale violence committing to PACOM theater. How is deconfliction or coordination being addressed at the joint level? Yep, that's a fantastic question. So I will tell you that the Indo-PACOM um, uh, joint team is actually looking at that deconfliction right now. There are multiple teams that are going out to evaluate that, um, and they've been charged with bringing that information back to uh, the Department of Defense to be able to work through that deconfliction. Um, but again, as I mentioned earlier, this, this galvanized team work is not just in the building, but it's, it's, it's permeating into that particular theater. And frankly, it's in UCOM also. Like we're taking these lessons and we're trying to deconflict because we know, we know that you know, warehouse A 
might be the only one that we've got. And so we've got to figure out collectively what actually needs to be stored in warehouse A from a joint force perspective. And so Indo-PACOM is working through that problem set right now, teaming with Pacific Air Forces, um, and then also with us inside the building. So it's being tackled. Damn. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of this Aerospace Nation event, and I just want to thank our panelists again for taking the time. I mean, this has been such an important conversation and really enlightening. And so, you know, from all of us at the Mitchell Institute, thanks so much for being with us and joining us, and have a great air and space power kind of day.